it's kind of mind-boggling that a country that I cherish so much as a Canadian, I feel like we're we're such a good country. And, you know, I struggle with that now. I, I struggle with with my Canadianness and what that really means to me now. Indigenous Perspectives. Indigenous Perspectives. Indigenous Perspectives. Stories from Indigenous Public Servants. Kansai. In northern Manitoba, where I was born and educated from kindergarten to university, that was the greeting I heard. Cree for hello and how are you? Monanta, I hope. This is Indigenous Perspectives, a program where we hope to explore the experiences and perspectives of Indigenous public servants, what reconciliation means to them, and what it can be for Canada. The song that you're hearing, Hoka, is given to us by DJ and producer Boogie the Beat. Boogie, who lives in Winnipeg, where he also goes by the name Les Boulangers, is Anishinaabe, and he mixes traditional powwow music with hip-hop, with power and majesty. And I thank him for this gift of this program. While reconciliation is a topic of current conversation in Canada and the focus of this audio series, it's not a new topic, and the conversation began a long time ago. On July 1st, 1967, on Canada's 100th birthday, Chief Dan George delivered his Lament for Confederation speech in front of a crowd of 32,000 people at Empire Stadium. We know him as Chief Dan George, but that wasn't his name. That was a name given to him when he was swallowed up by the residential school system at age five. Oh, he loved, he loved His name was only one of many things he had taken away, and that all indigenous people had taken away during this dark time in Canadian history. But he took that name accepted it, and became great in spite of it, in spite of all he lost. He was a longshoreman for 27 years before an accident forced him to look for other work, and so he became a construction worker and a school bus driver. And then, in his 60s, a renowned television and movie actor. How long have I known you, Canada? A hundred years? Yes, a hundred years. And many, many guides more. And today, when you celebrate your hundred years of Canada, I am sad. For all the Indian people throughout the land. For I have known you. As a child, I listened intently to him speak. Passion and wisdom flowed from his gentle voice. I remember wishing that he was my grandfather. I wished he could tell me stories. 
where your fish flashed and, and I wasn't the only one. As an actor, and a poet, and an author, and a social activist, he became the face of his people for a generation. And my spirit, like your winds, the elder, once rose this good land. But in the long hundred years since the white man came, I've seen that freedom disappear. And he did not squander the opportunities that his fame had given him. The white man's strange customs I could not understand pressed down upon me. He did not rest comfortably and bask in the adoration. When I fought to protect my home and my land, he did not lose sight of who he was and where he'd come from. When I neither understood nor welcomed this new way of life, I was called lazy. He never left. When I tried to rule my people, I was... Even after he became a star, he remained on the Burrard Reserve in North Vancouver, living in the same house that he had built for his wife and children. We were less important in the history of Canada than the buffalo that ranged the plains. And he worked. I was ridiculed in your plays and motion And on that day, in 1967... And when I drank the fire water... He risked... I got drunk. Everything. Very, very drunk. And I forgot. He'd rehearsed the soliloquy with his family, who loved it. But would Canada love it? How can I celebrate with you this centennial? Or accept it? This hundred years. Or tolerate it? Shall I thank you for the reserves that are left me of my beautiful boy? Would he leave the stadium alive? Shall I thank you for the canned fish of my rivers? Shall I thank you for the loss of my pride and authority, even among my own people? For the lack of my will to fight back? No. I must forget. John F. Kennedy and Malcolm X had been assassinated for speaking out. Oh, God in heaven. Give me the courage of the old chief. Let me wrestle with my surroundings. Let me once again, as in the days of old, dominate my environment. Let me humbly accept this new culture and through it rise up and go on. Oh God, like the thunderbird of old, I shall rise again out of the sea. I shall grasp the instruments of the white man's success, his education, his skills, and with these new tools, I shall build my race into the proudest segment of your society. And before I follow the great chiefs who have gone before us, I shall see these things come to pass. I shall see our young braves and our chiefs sitting in the house of law and government, ruling and being ruled by the knowledge and freedom of our great land.
so shall we shatter the barriers of our isolation. So shall the next hundred years be the greatest in the proud history of our tribes and nations. And when he'd uttered the last words, there was silence from the crowd at Empire Stadium. Seconds of silence in a space that held 32,000 people. Silence until they stood up from their seats and clapped and cheered sustaining an ear-splitting acclamation of nearly 10 minutes duration. Applause as long as the speech itself. And Chief Dan George cried. And his family, standing behind him, cried. For a moment, everything seemed possible. In the years ahead before his death in 1981, some of his dreams for the future did come to pass. And more in the decades after. But how much and how little has changed in the 50 years since his historic speech? What does reconciliation mean? And how far have we still to go? That's what this series hopes to discover. And now, in their own words, the thoughts and feelings of some of Canada's own public servants. Speaking only from your own perception and your own perspective, what does reconciliation mean to you personally? Ah, great question. It's broad, um, but it's, it's, it's meant to, I guess, be inspirational. And I, what I do say is, you know, for those that understand, we'll never judge. Those that judge, will never understand. And what I mean by that is you need to create a space to allow reconciliation to be infused in either your day-to-day -day life, your personal life, your view of the other, in this case, Indigenous peoples, and maybe understand that what was taught to me as a child or my current thinking maybe has to evolve a bit. And understanding the other is reconciliation. Now I get it. And I think that can be infused to whether it be LGBT issues, you know, um, however you interpret the other. Okay, now I get it. Yesterday I didn't. Today I do. That's reconciliation. I have such a hard time with reconciliation as a term. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about this over the last couple of years. Because people often ask, like when I was working at INAC, I was part of like an Indigenous employees kind of group. And we had all kinds of talk about, about reconciliation. And I was asked, well, what does it mean to you? It's like, well, what reconciliation is to me is that we will eventually get to a point where we won't have to talk about reconciliation. <laughs> like, we'll, it'll just, it'll just become mutual respect and understanding and moving forward together will just be part of what we do. We won't need to label it. We don't, won't need to talk about things all the time. Granted, it means a lot of different things to different people. 
Reconciliation is about resilience. It's about honoring the truth and reconciling for the future. Language is an instrument to reconciliation. And I wrote a little poem that speaks to this theme. Parler notre langue, c'est bâtir nos communautés. Parler notre langue, c'est renforcer nos familles. Parler notre langue, c'est renouer avec nos racines. Parler notre langue, c'est recréer nos traditions et notre culture. Parler notre langue, c'est assurer notre survie et la continuation de la vie. L'apprentissage de sa langue sacrée est une responsabilité personnelle, familiale et communautaire. Reconciliation for me means having a Canada where wherever I look and wherever I walk, I hear Indigenous languages. I see Indigenous monuments of history. I can taste the food wherever I want and I can hear the music. Just like the way the Italians have Italy, Germans have Germany, East Indians have India. That for me is reconciliation. And if by sharing my idea of reconciliation to the non-Indigenous people, if they could help in their job do that work, and where I want the non-Indigenous people to start, as Indigenous people are slowly doing too, is to start reconciliation within themselves. So what does that mean? So that means like you've got to start your healing journey. It's kind of mind-boggling that a country that I cherish so much, as a Canadian, I feel like we're, we're such a good country, and, and we talk about our land, you know, this beautiful land. And then, you know, what do we do to the land? We, we, we've lost our connection to the land. We don't respect it. We don't take care of it. We rape it. We ravage it. <laughs> You know, I struggle with that now. I, I struggle with with my Canadianness <laughs> and what that really means to me now. And you know, I'm I'm somebody who who cries when they when they play <laughs> when I hear the national anthem. <laughs> and when I lived overseas, I was very proud to to call myself a Canadian and and and, and share that that world with those when I was in, in Arabia and with others and, and to talk about this beautiful country. And yet, the more I learn about our history and the past and our record with Indigenous peoples, the more I struggle with whether, I, whether that pride is misplaced. And when I hear people say, oh, that happened a long time ago, you know, get over it. You can't reconcile things like this by just getting over it any more than I could reconcile my depression and my the trauma that I experienced in my past without really looking at it and peeling things away and discovering what it was that was truly making me so sad and really looking it in the eye and facing it and working to overcome it and accept it 
as a part of who I am and a part of my life story and moving forward, but with with full understanding and full knowledge of what my past has been. So I guess I, I, I see parallels between each individual and, and where our country is in its healing journey. Everybody, like I said earlier, is walking around in pain. And that means it's our responsibility as an adult to look at that pain and to heal it so that we can, we can become, you know, better, better parents, better employees, make us ourselves better contribution to, to our small community in whichever part of the city we live in. And, be able to make a better contribution to a whole entire nation, Canada. But it all starts from ourselves first. We have to reconcile with ourselves, and then we can start reconciling outside of us in our family. We can start reconciling with those in our community and where we work, and we can better reconcile with with our nation. And we all have to do it together. For me, that's what reconciliation is. And, you know, it's it's all about relationships, a relationship with myself, a relationship with all the people around me. But that's where it starts for me is my own healing journey. And I would like everybody else to do the same thing because it's their responsibility to start with themselves first. I, I don't come from a family that, uh, that has members that went to residential schools. So that part of reconciliation means something to, to those people, but doesn't mean that to me. Because my, my grandparents' generation were really good at outrunning the Indian agents, so they never went, which was great. But to me, it's getting to a point where we can just stop talking about it. Like, where we can just move forward together. Is I feel that there's, there's a lot of talking, but I don't see the action yet. I don't know what it means. How are we going to quantify this? How are we quantifying reconciliation? How are we going to say, hey, in 2020, we've made X progress in reconciliation? What does that mean? Like, if I can't say what it means to me, like, I wonder what it means to the rest of Indigenous Canada. What does it mean to the government of Canada? What does it mean to Canadians? I have no idea. If I'm having this much problem with it, like I, I wonder, like, what do what do other people think about it? Mm-hmm. For me, it means that there's acknowledgement of work to be done. There's acknowledgement that there are issues in the past that need to be corrected and are being corrected and continue to be corrected. Uh, most recently, Inuit in Nunatsiavut, Newfoundland and Labrador, received an apology as part of the residential school when the government of Canada apologized to residential school survivors. Ten years ago or so, Inuit in Newfoundland and Labrador were not included in that because the government 
of Canada, federal government stated that it was a provincial-run school and responsibility, therefore the federal government didn't have any obligations to, to that demographic area. So that's one example of reconciliation, correcting some of the past policy or political or program decisions. I want to use an example, uh, the recent apology. Uh, Prime Minister apologized to uh, residential school survivors in Nunatsiavut. They had been excluded the first round. And the Inuk man who, who kindly accepted the apology was wise because Inuit need to continue to move on. This this was part of reconciliation. Now, if you look at the, the Inuit nation, they did not accept that apology. So this means that the Inuit, Inuit are, they're put on hold for now until they're ready. So for Inuit, uh, in that... Uh, apology is part of reconciliation. There has to be an acknowledgement and an acceptance so we can move ahead, move on. This is part of reconciliation. Okay, uh, so from my experience, um in the, in the federal public service, there is definitely a, a different feel, especially with new government. But it, it, again, I can understand how a lot of people have some hesitance towards success because there's not really going to be a whole lot of tangible results. And I think people see that in the government itself too, but there's a lot of going through the motions. And um, it's something that when I first started in the government, I was trying really hard to get in kind of any way. And I tried to uh, get in um, through equity, through, through being negative. And, it's something where there's all these policies and all these um, actions that are available, but nobody really knows how to connect the wires and nobody really has any interest to, to look into it. There's no support systems. So it's, I think that's kind of the same feeling that people may get when they, they talk about reconciliation. They're a little bit worried that it's going to be this long kind of roundabout journey where people get in big conversations and maybe even arguments, but maybe not really get anywhere when it's said and done. Right now we're hearing the word reconciliation is bandied about incessantly and wonders what it truly means. Accountants use the term for those tables, the books are balanced, the checkbook matches, the bank statement confirms a company's accounting records or even an individual's. In theology, it is a returning of faith or harmony after conflict. Reconciliation can be to ideas, narratives, persons, groups. The term is also used to refer to a process, to a positive outcome or goal. In light of the Truth and Reconciliation Report's 94 calls to action, wherein the word is repeated over 65 times, what does reconciliation truly mean to the Indigenous peoples in Canada, the First Nations, the Métis, the Inuit? And secondly, what are the employees of the government doing towards achieving this goal, and in particular, number 57 of the calls to action. 
the government of Canada that I'm privileged to be an employee of is the country's largest employer and as a machinery carrying out the government's agenda, the public service can make a real difference in working towards reconciliation. So there are 34 federal organizations that are responsible for fulfilling the government of Canada's obligations, commitments, and constitutional responsibilities towards Indigenous people. This is a huge, huge challenge, and, and I feel as though we've been here before. We were here when, you know, the RCAP report was released. There was an article in the Globe and Mail by, I think her name was Alicia Elliott. She's Mohawk from Six Nations, and it was an incredibly fascinating read, and she talked about, you know, the frustration about not having been consulted, no consultations when, you know, the government made, government made the decision to that we're going to fix this problem by creating two new departments, the Department of you know, Crown and, Indig- and Indigenous Relations and um, Indigenous Services. And her comment was, you know, that's, that's what we do all the time. We, 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 there's, and she documented in her article, like, all the different names for Indigenous affairs <laughs> over the years and, and how we, you know, bureaucratically, we, we make these shifts. And again, it's like, it's like smoke and mirrors, you know? And, and so, is it real? Are we really ready to do the work? It's like asking an alcoholic, are you ready to really commit to not having another drink and how painful and difficult that is or, or somebody who's addicted of it to anything and to peel off those layers of pain and hurt and really look and really be willing to see what got you there and acknowledge it. It's painful. Anybody who struggled in self-growth and, and so for a country to go through that process. To me, it's no different. It, it, it's really no different. Layer upon layer of things that we've told ourselves to make things better, but maybe we were just running from the truth. The other thing for reconciliation is finding a space for non-Indigenous people to really learn about First Nations and Métis people and, and the communities. I think it's it's a responsibility for each individual to, to learn more about it. And narrowing it down, I think, I would argue is, can be a bit, um, I don't want to say dangerous, but you could eliminate certain interpretations of what reconciliation is. I use the term reconciliation as understanding the other. And what I mean by that is I give presentations to to allow people to understand a bit of our history, the impacts of residential schools, not only on Indigenous individuals, survivors, intergenerational survivors, but you know, I try and inform people that this country as a whole is wounded. So reconciliation can be whatever you define it, through whatever interpretation you want. So if you happen to go to a church, that could be a different interpretation. If you were the government of Canada, that could be a different interpretation. If you're a teacher, it could be a different interpretation. So all of those are accurate. And 
I try and just kind of inform people so that they can understand the other. And if there's a space to understand the other, you know, the realities are it wasn't taught in our history books. Not a lot of uh, Canadians knew about the legacy of residential schools and residential schools themselves. So, but if there's a space for people to be open enough to understand our history, then we have um, a space so someone can define through whatever filter they're looking through, one of reconciliation. I like measurable things. And measuring social progress is difficult. There's all kinds of ways to do it. But I feel like if we're going to say to the rest of the world, to the United Nations, to people in the Commonwealth, to Canadians, that, hey, we're, we're making strides on reconciliation, and we need to define what that means with Indigenous people. So, and I'm not sure if there, there is definitely not a common definition of what it means and what success looks like. Some people may consider it to be, you know, a complete implementation of all historic treaties, a complete implementation of modern treaties. Okay, but I don't know if that's what it means to me. I think to me it just means mutual respect and acknowledgement that things have happened in the past and, like, putting the supports in place that Indigenous people can live the same way as other Canadians. There's a massive gap there. But like that gets into a much larger issue that was an issue before reconciliation was a term. So like closing socioeconomic gaps, I think if we could do that, then we'd have no talk of reconciliation because there wouldn't be any problem. Like everybody would be moving forward using the same kind of goalposts, like moving towards the same objective. There'd be no more gaps. Now, other organizations are also commenting on reconciliation, and the National Aboriginal Economic Development Board has highlighted the significant gaps between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians in terms of high school completion, university completion, labor force participation, employment, and average annual income. And this is their quote from their book, their report, providing equal opportunity for Indigenous peoples will help Canada address the ongoing economic challenges caused by low productivity and demographic change from an aging population. This is uh, from Chief Terence Paul, board member and chief of Melba II First Nation. This includes equal access to education and training and economic opportunities more broadly from access to new jobs and equal employment conditions to resources for starting a new business. In its reconciliation report, it continues and estimates that closing the productivity gap would lead to an increase of $27.7 billion to Canada's GDP per year. And that's the sum of the estimated increases in employment income earned by Indigenous peoples across all provinces and territories. Additionally, there is an estimated $8 billion opportunity dividend to gain each year from reduced poverty and lower health care, social, and other associated costs. So this means that if Indigenous people had the same education, if Indigenous peoples were given the same access to economic opportunities, 
if the poverty rates among Indigenous peoples were reduced. Overall, if the gap in opportunities for Indigenous communities across Canada were closed, this is the result of $27.7 billion annually, or a boost of 1.5% to Canada's economy. When I applied for the free agent program, I knew, in my mind, the only thing you know I wanted to work on was reconciliation and wellness. You know, reconciliation's a big word. And for me, it really is about helping people understand a different way of being and recognizing that there is value in that understanding. You know, I've been coordinating some blanket exercises in the past uh, couple of weeks at Fisheries and Oceans. And, and it's a powerful learning experience because people can immerse themselves into the history and, and become an Indigenous person for a, for a short time and live the history within an hour, 500 years of history. But it puts you in the role. And the first time I did it, I, I, I just remember... First of all, I felt so moved around. I, mean, I just got pushed around and, and like, you know, you were living here and you got pushed over there. And through that history, I, it was really like the feeling I got was it was really tumultuous and it was really, nobody cared about me. It was just what they wanted to do, what the settlers wanted. And I was just a pawn being moved around. That, that was one of the, the big things that I felt when I did that ex- exercise. And the other thing that happened was I was, you know, identified as one of the people who was enfranchised in in that role play. And so I lost my status because I became a teacher. And when that happened, I like I sat down after that when we had the sharing circle and I was I was like bawling and I was thinking, wow, I wonder if that happened. I wonder if that happened to my ancestors. Is it possible? that somebody in my lineage lost their status for something like that? I don't know. There's a lot of mystery around um, my ancestry, and, and sometimes I I question it. And, and the more I learn about um, how unwelcomed and, and how degraded Indigenous people were in the past, I can understand why people didn't want to admit it, and they'd want to hide it, and they'd, they wouldn't want people to know. And so they would become assimilated to protect themselves. Well, right now we have Indigenous awareness through relationships, and it's become a top priority for this government. And the School of Public Service is hard at work on its own contribution to reconciliation. And they've developed an Indigenous learning series. And I'd invite people to participate in the upcoming workshops. I am one of the facilitators. The series will range uh, from events and courses to videos and jobs age. And what it's going to do is going to help us understand our duties and obligations. We're going to understand Indigenous people's histories, contemporary experiences, legal rights, and hopefully foster the creation of respectful relationships and effective collaboration. 
And as an individual, what can I do for reconciliation? Ron Moran, who's the director of Truth and Reconciliation Center in, in Winnipeg, asks five questions. Do I know any Indigenous people? If not, why? Have I ever participated in ceremony? If not, why? Am I able to name the traditional territory I stand? If not, why? Have I meaningfully engaged in deep conversation with Indigenous people? If not, why? And have I read an Indigenous author? If not, why? For me, books are great conversation starters, as are meals and a cup of coffee. It would be Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous people sitting in a circle, speaking to one another, sharing a meal together, participating in ceremony throughout the day. The healing work happens when we allow new friendships to take hold and to continue to share meals together as the years pass. You know, the human dimension is limited on so many levels, right? And and just as St. Clair said, and, and I agree with him, you know, residential schools impacted Indigenous peoples for seven generations. We can't just simply apologize or say I'm sorry or change a policy and it's over. It's not. This country as a whole is wounded. Indigenous peoples, when you look at all the healthy social indicators, are at the lowest level on multiple sides. So when you see those levels, whether it be the suicide rate, education levels, average income levels, when those are equitable, not exactly the same, but equitable to other sectors of society, then I think we can start patting ourselves on the back. And that's going to take a long time. There are still issues. If people look at the, the, the news, and, and residential schools was only one policy. There were multiple policies that were held against Indigenous peoples. And it was just uh, two weeks ago we saw the announcements on the 60 Scoop, non-implementation of treaties and others as well. So this is just one of the issues that this country needs to unpack and for Indigenous peoples need to, uh, to heal from. So I would make the same argument as Justice Sinclair, which is, you know, five or six generations. It's going to be a long time. But it's something that this country can take on. Once the, like I said, the most vulnerable sector of society comes back to center, then I think we can start. And that's going to be sustained commitment required at multiple levels. And, you know, the uh, calls to action, 94 of them, I think every Canadian can see themselves in at least one of them. So I think, uh, uh, you know, a good start is reading uh, the executive summary of the TRC final report, the calls to action, 94 of them and look at how can people contribute towards reconciliation. Indigenous Perspectives, Stories from Indigenous Public Servants, is a production of Employment and Social Development Canada. All opinions expressed on Indigenous Perspectives are strictly those of the individual and are not necessarily those of their employer. Public servants featured in this episode were Andrea Dykstra, Janice Edgar, Jeanette Fraser, Ryan Jador, Tunichuli Kutu-Sharello, Pamela Capuena, Tim Malone, 
Tbilisi Nakatarvik. I'm Todd Lyons, host, writer, and technical producer for this series. Thank you for listening. Yeah.